I've always wondered what would happen to my art practice if I finally let that security go. It was scary for me, but I, I mean, I've wanted to know and the universe was like, I'll show you. <laughs> Hey everyone, this is Kara Lee. This is Daniel. And this is the After Hack Podcast. We're coming from Brooklyn, New York. And we have Kathy with us today. Thank you for coming, Kathy. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so, first I want to explain, just because I think it's interesting how we met you. Can you explain what that was? Because you'll be able to explain it better than I can. <laughs> I, mean, I like to think that means you have no idea where we were. <laughs> <laughs> My friends Sarah and Julian run something called Link Link Club. Maybe it's once a month. They invite someone from from their artist community to come and give a lecture of anything of their choosing. That person can invite up to 10 people. They like to bring in new people to their space, which is um, a live and work space for their art and then for them and their family. There are no guidelines for what you can lecture on. The only guidelines actually are that if you have a specialty, so like I have a master's in visual art and filmmaking and I have a master's in creative writing, you're not allowed to talk about your quote-unquote specialty or your, <laughs> your, you have to talk about something kind of that people wouldn't expect you to give a lecture on. Which is great. Tell us what you did your lecture on. <laughs> so I essentially crowdsourced ideas from my community of my friend, um, Lisa. She's a little younger than me. She's in her 20s. She said, I would love for you to tell me how to make it as a 30-something-year-old woman in the world, which I was like, oh, that's really sweet. Um, I don't know if I feel like I can give a lecture on that. <laughs> and then, like the former West Coaster I am, I pulled tarot cards to decide which one I should talk about. <laughs> So I ended up getting the strongest response for how to make it as a 30-something-year-old woman in the world. So you're from Texas? Yeah, I grew up in San Antonio, Texas. Where did you go to school? I grew up very into riot girl culture, which was feminist, punk rock, and subculture. I just was like, I've got to get out of here. My parents are so strict. And so I went as far as I could. And so I moved to, when I turned 18, Olympia, Washington, which is... To the Evergreen State College, a very unusual, interesting, affordable state school. There are no grades, lengthy narrative evaluations, no majors. <laughs> and I wanted to go there so I could just jump into. I did a bunch of research when I was in high school, and I was like, okay, I want to study filmmaking, but I don't want to go through all of these prerequisites and not hold a camera in my hands until like my second year or something. You know, like I want to just start making films immediately. And I also wanted to study writing. And even though they didn't have majors, I knew that I'd be able to do both of those things. That's so cool. So were you there for four years? Yeah, I was there for the whole four years. It was great. And my last year there was an independent study. So I was making an experimental nonfiction film. And so I would meet with a core group of faculty who, you know, we decided beforehand that these would be my, this would be my senior thesis committee. And so what was great about that and terrible about that was I was very much treated like an adult and like a professional and that's great I mean to be taken seriously like that at such a young age my film you know and the work I was doing on it was taken very seriously but at the same time I was a baby you know so <laughs> yeah. it would have been nice to have a little more structure but at the same time I mean that's not what that school is about it's, it's a 
magical place that I would recommend. It's just like you really got to be ready for it. (laughs) What degree do you graduate from that from? Bachelor's in liberal studies. So the thing about that that's hilarious is because you don't get grades, you get lengthy narrative evaluations. I mean lengthy. (laughs) (laughs) My transcripts are 48 pages. (laughs) um, That's hilarious. When I was applying to graduate school, I could not get the PDF small enough to, you know, upload them (laughs) for the applications. It was nuts. And so then when you graduated, what did you do next? So when I left Evergreen, I briefly moved to Portland, Oregon without a plan for like two weeks was like the assistant to a children's photographer, which meant I like parted a child's messy hair for a school photo (laughs) and, and felt really lost. And then... I moved back to Texas for just like a hot minute and then got a phone call that I'm convinced like it would have gotten lost in the shuffle. My parents would have never told me this happened because my parents, they don't even look at their voicemail, you know, like (laughs) I just happened to pick up my parents' phone while I was back home for three months. Um, It was a phone call inviting me to a premiere of a feature film I had been a locations assistant on two years prior and they were inviting me to the premiere I was like yeah of course I'll be there and in my head I was like because I'm living in my parents house post college <laughs> have no idea what I'm doing like I will be there with bells on and then also I started to get back together with a person I had been seeing and so I started to make plans to move to Athens Georgia <laughs> so is that where the screening was or no the screening was in Texas so my sophomore year of college I got mono <laughs> I got so sick. My parents were super worried about me, and they put me on a plane to Texas. As soon as I got to Texas, I get put in the hospital, and then magically, I'm I'm okay again. Like, I, my fever breaks, I'm out of the hospital, and I'm not kidding you, it's like a fever dream. I see on the news that this film is being shot in my hometown, San Antonio, <laughs> Texas. It coincided with spring break, so I had, like, at least a week or two where I could just be at my parents' place, and I saw... One of the actors in the feature film was an actor who, this filmmaker I love named Hal Hartley, he was a regular in his films, and I was like, this can't be happening. Is, you know, Bill Sage, is he really in San Antonio filming a cop movie? Like, what's going on? (laughs) I just mentioned that I would love to work on that. My aunt, who worked for the police department, was like, oh yeah, I have a lot of ins to that because it's a (laughs) cop movie. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I just ended up saying, like, look, I'm a film student. I want to come intern on your film. And so they brought me in right away because San Antonio is not really a hotbed of film activity. So they were like, yeah, if you know anything about film come and work on this so I intended to just be an unpaid intern and then meet this actor and basically get to this filmmaker I loved through him (laughs) and within a couple of days was working really really hard and they were just like we want to promote you to locations assistant and you'll actually get paid and you won't have to do some of the terrible things that we're asking you (laughs) to do. You'll have to do just, like, slightly (laughs) less terrible things. I ended up meeting Bill Sage, who loved that I knew Hal Hartley because no one else on that set or, you know, he had met in that town knew who Hal Hartley was. He was a really prominent 90s New York filmmaker who his films got me into cinema. And so anyway, uh, we became pals and... He told me he was going to be the lead in the next Hal Hartley film, and so he gave me his phone number and was like, just keep in touch with me. And this is, like, a long time ago. This is before I feel like we were all over the internet. Right. So, like, someone giving you their phone number, 
Like, I think I wrote it down. I didn't even <laughs> think I had a cell phone or something. Who knows? This was, like, early 2000s. I'm not kidding you. Like, the next two years, I would call him a couple times a year and be like, remember me, though? Like, just wanted to see. Is that film happening? So then when I went to the premiere, I ran into him, and he was like, it's happening! Um, <laughs> you know, call the producer, Lisa, and tell her who you are. We'll get you on that film. And so had a magical, wonderful experience. And... It was crazy because I'd never been to New York before, and I was like, I'm not a small town girl, but you know, I was, I definitely like had been very sheltered in San Antonio and then went to like the bubble of Olympia, Washington, and then all of a sudden I was in New York. It kind of um, caused me to realize I needed to apply to grad school and work on my own films more. I still keep in touch with him and actually spent the last year working for him on his archives and this upcoming book project he has. So me getting mono was the best thing. <laughs> That's <laughs> that so kind of incredible. Of when you came to New York, how long did you stay after the movie no, was No, no. And I'm like haunted by the fact that I worked so hard. I was, you know, I was there set intern and I was it was a very independent low budget shoot for this feature film it was like a 21 day shoot or something and I had to leave before the rap party because I was in my 20s and my boyfriend missed me and like oh, you know yeah. what I mean so I was totally like no no I gotta go back <laughs> when I got my MFA in creative writing I wrote this novel that's based on my experience as a queer feminist woman trying to you know, make this heterosexual relationship work and all of the complexities of it. And there's actually a chapter called Rap Party. <laughs> just because that moment where you're just like, I worked really hard and I deserve to celebrate it with all these people. It felt very symbolic of what I felt like I had to choose one, you know, one or the other yeah. at that time. What are some Hartley movies that can't be missed? In the 90s, that was his decade for sure, in early 2000s. So he did Henry Fool and Trust, and Simple Men, and The Unbelievable Truth, Flirt, and Amateur. So there are a lot of titles that you may have never seen. Like, Parker Posey was in a few of them, and his first two feature films, Trust and The Unbelievable Truth, it's actually, in the, like, Unbelievable Truth was 1989, and then Trust is, like, either 90 or 91. They both star. His former both romantic and artistic collaborator Adrian Shelley went on to make Waitress. So you went back to Georgia? Yeah, I moved to Athens, Georgia and worked with these great people who were starting the Athens Film Foundation and this something called Sprockets Music Video Festival. And um, and I think that's the beauty of small towns. I was given a lot of freedom to, like, I had an idea. And people were like, yeah, do it. Like, if you've got some experience and you've got this idea, like, we're happy that just someone wants to do something. But there, I think there's a real beauty to being a big fish in a small pond and um so Athens is great for that reason it was yeah, and if you if you know how to execute it you know totally then, like go for it right yeah um it's so affordable to live there that I was I was really able to just have a couple of weird part-time jobs and just work on my own projects which included applying to graduate school for filmmaking and so where did you go to grad school so the first time I went to grad school I went to UC San Diego it was the only visual art MFA program I applied to I applied to like seven schools six of them were all filmmaking MFA programs and then the seventh one was sort of like a a gamble. I was like, we'll just see what happens. I applied to some really traditional filmmaking programs, and then I applied to some experimental programs. There was a book I read called like Film School Confidential. I think it's a website now. But it basically broke down all the different types of film programs you could apply to. Mm-hmm. You know, if you go to CalArts, it's going to be more experimental, but if you go to like San Francisco State, it's going to be more independent. If you go to UCLA, it's going to be pretty mainstream. Um, just like it. And so I just took a chance and applied to this 
visual art program where I would be one of just a couple of filmmakers and there'd be other artists there. So Mm -hmm. that program ended up giving me the best financial (laughs) deal. So I went with it, you know, I just thought, wow, this program really wants me. They're giving me a full scholarship to go to grad school and they're giving me a fellowship, which means I have a living stipend, you know, in addition to not having to pay for class and they're giving me a job, uh, you know, I'll be teaching and it it was guaranteed for three years. It just was, it's the only reason I would move to San Diego ever. (laughs) But also, I mean, I like the idea that it was a two hour drive from LA because I knew that eventually I'd want to be in LA or possibly New York. I just um, wasn't quite ready to move to L.A. or New York. Were there a lot of visual painters there yeah, and sculptors yeah. there? Yeah, Dark so design. it was a very, there were about like 20 of us okay. um, in my year. There were maybe three of us who were film and video makers, and then there were, you know, a few people that worked in performance art and sculpture and installation. People were just doing everything, and it was really great because we all had studio space as well. So even... I, as a filmmaker, I felt guilty about it because I I was like, I just need a closet with a computer to edit. Like, I don't need this huge space. A lot of people don't know that you can really go to school for free. You can go to graduate school for free. And I didn't know. I I mean, I just started researching. And I think I heard one, a friend once say, like, I'm only going to go to graduate school if it's free. And I was like, how would it be free? (laughs) You know, it's not something that's always advertised. It's like fine print somewhere. Like, oh, and... Everyone who's accepted, you know, get, gets tuition reimbursement or get, gets tuition, full tuition covered. Because it's like, I feel like everyone would be applying if they knew <laughs> it was yeah. free. And so that was a great experience. I mean, it was a hard experience. I wouldn't say, I mean, it was great, but it was hard. Okay, so how long was the program? Could be as short as two years or as long as three and a half. And how long were you there for? <laughs> three and a half. I was like, <laughs> you're going to pay me the whole time I'm here? Then yes, I'm going to stay as long as I can. To even pick out that program, in a way, was job prep. I didn't know much about UC San Diego's program, and so I started realizing I cared less about the faculty and more about what people were doing when they came out of that program. And so I started researching alumni and where are they working, what are they doing, you know, because... I feel like that's almost more important than than researching the faculty. I'm sure many people would disagree, but it's like if you go to school thinking, like, I'm going to study with my favorite filmmaker and my favorite writer, you might be really disappointed because they might be a terrible teacher or they might be completely unavailable for you, you know? So right. I was just like, it'll be a good sign. So anyway, so that was one thing that seemed very promising to me. Like, I liked the work that people were making when they came out of that program or what they seemed to be up to. So in line with that... I was sort of like, okay, well, I'm midway through this program. What are people with MFAs in film or MFAs in visual art even doing? Obviously, we all want to be making our films. But just started, you know, I just started searching for, you know, either jobs that were saying, like, this must require, you know, requires an MFA or looking for resumes of people who had MFAs online and seeing just like what kind of jobs were they working. And I noticed that I was seeing something kind of that I would have never imagined, which was it seemed like there was this need for filmmakers 
who could work with young people. So whether it was like a youth arts organization or a film festival, but I was seeing that as something that it seemed like a potential to like, oh, maybe that's the kind of experience I should be getting or that's something I can be doing right now. And as soon as I noticed that need, that was pretty much all I did for the next few years. And during the summers when I wasn't in graduate school, I would be teaching filmmaking to kids, which you would think like that's such a random job. How does that even happen? How many little kids need to make films right now? (laughs) But it turns out there are many. (laughs) And so whether it was like we're teaching documentary to junior high students or teaching narrative filmmaking to Girl Scouts from all over the world, there was this need for people who wanted to work with young people and teach them filmmaking. And so so I did that in San Diego and Los Angeles and then ended up taking a full-time job doing that, which seemed incredibly rare. And I couldn't pass it up. It was at this media arts education nonprofit in LA called Venice Arts. And they had been teaching photography to young people for decades, but they hadn't really built their film program. Like all that experience I had in graduate school, it was like this specialty that I sort of had now on my resume. Like, oh, she's worked with K through 12 students in film repeatedly. Like clearly she has a passion for that and clearly she's done that. So I got this amazing full-time job, um, not just teaching film to young people, but really creating a program. I got to experiment and build different curriculum for documentary filmmaking and animation. And, you know, I ended up being there for four years. So I really got to see the program develop and take off and see our students do these great things and hire faculty, train faculty. And I led the internship program, matching up students with amazing internships that we probably wouldn't get (laughs) at places from like Warner Brothers or Anonymous Content. If you're listening to this from LA, Venice Arts is 100% free. There is a waiting list at times. While I was there, I got to go to D.C. and participate at the Kennedy Center with all these other youth arts organizations, and it was just, it was great. (laughs) And so then, what made you leave there? What was, like, the next step? For me, at some point, I realized I wasn't making my own work anymore as a filmmaker, which, I mean, it happens, you know, in any medium, especially when you're teaching. I was doing a lot of writing, but which was great, but I didn't know what to do with it. Going back to that whole... I'm a, I've lived on the West Coast for a long time. <laughs> I um, consulted an astrologer about the next step. <laughs> and what did that astrologer say? <laughs> but she did this amazing astrological geography thing where she told me the best places for me to live in the United States for my career, creativity, finances, for my love life, for my health, and they were all terrible places. <laughs> so apparently I have this line going through like, And no offense to any of these places, I'm mostly joking about this, but it was literally going through, like, Wyoming, Montana, Utah, New Mexico, Arizona, Colorado. (laughs) (laughs) So for, like, a few months, I just racked my brain, and I was like, what would I do in any of those places? There was a moment before I applied to film school for graduate school where I considered applying to creative writing programs. And so I remembered, actually, a lot of those places have incredible creative writing MFA programs. University of Wyoming has a fantastic one. There's a school in Montana that has a great writing program. You know, the University of Arizona, where I ended up going, has a fantastic program. 
I ended up applying for MFA programs again, telling myself <laughs> I would only go if I got in fully funded somewhere. There's no way I would pay for a second MFA. Everyone thought I was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> got a full scholarship to the University of Arizona and left LA for Tucson, which a lot of people could not believe. <laughs> and how long was that program? It was a two-year program. You really liked it? I loved it, yeah. You know, the first time I went to graduate school, I was in my 20s. The second time I went to graduate school, I was 31. I was a completely different person, and I just was like, if I could only go back and do things differently, I got a chance to go back and do things differently. I was like, I'm not going to party and explore my sexuality at the time. <laughs> like, I was like, I'm going to hit the books and maybe just party just a teeny bit. I just knew that there were opportunities that are only available to you when you're a student. Even if you're a 30-something-year-old student, like there are fellowships and artist residencies and things that really you have to be an enrolled student to apply for, you know? So I was like, I'm applying for everything now that I'm here. I had one summer and I completely used it to its full potentials. I was awarded two different artist residencies, ended up only going to one of them because something else popped up that I did instead. I did a two-month residency at this place called Prairie Center of the Arts in Peoria, Illinois. There's nothing to do there except (laughs) to make art. I was now in this house living with a bunch of people who were all making different kinds of art, you know? So there was someone that was a painter, and there was someone that made crazy things out of cardboard, Mm -hmm. and... (laughs) Being around that energy of people making things and like everyone's just driven to make work, it just changes the way I make work. And you know, versus if I had just stayed at my place in Tucson trying to write, it really just reminds you like I am a full time artist and this is what I'm here to do. I also did a one month work study at a retreat center in Big Sur, California called Esalen. Um, I don't know if you know anything about Esalen. No. So you have to look at photos. It's beautiful. I think it was created in the 60s as this, I don't even know, I thought it was a cult before I went there, (laughs) and (laughs) I did yoga every day, I did meditated every day, I took a class called Everyday Spiritual Practice and Soul Making Um, every day. (laughs) I was like naked in hot springs, you know, with the teacher of my class, with my coworkers, you know, I lived in a room with three women for a month. It was, like, an incredible experience in a different way. So it's, like, the two-month artist residency where all I did was work on my writing and artistic practice. Now I had this month where all I did was actually just work on myself as a person. (laughs) So it's basically the best summer of my life. Like, it was incredible. And I couldn't have had that summer had I not gone back to school my time. you said it was a work study? Esalen is so expensive to visit. Like, they've got rooms that cost, like, you can just go and visit. But the rooms cost, like, $600 a night. You have access to just, like, paradise, basically. Um, So in order to do a summer work study you've got to work there. So I was like folding laundry so many hours a week in exchange for three amazing meals a day, access to classes, the hot springs and everything, and a free place to stay. Like completely worth it. I would fold laundry for the rest of my life (laughs) if I could have that experience. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it wasn't all roses. In a way, it's almost like spiritual rehab or something because there's some, you're off the grid. You don't get any cell phone reception there, Wi-Fi, like a lot of famous writers have gone to Big Sur and written their, you know, their their masterwork there. Mm-hmm. And there's something about being there that forces you to really confront 
things that you need to confront in order to be a better person. That's all I can really describe it as. Your demons sort of come up there. <laughs> no big deal. Just your demons. Draw <laughs> yeah. a hot spring. So like, you know, it's like a trade-off. I highly recommend it. I've recommended it to so many people. One of my friends was like, were you in rehab? And I was like, no, there are people drinking there. It was totally fine. <laughs> When you finished that program, did you do? Oh, yeah. So, okay. And I just want to say one more thing about that program that was really yeah. funny was because um, I had all that experience teaching media arts, teaching filmmaking to kids. Um, this really hilariously random thing happened to me while I was at the University of Arizona, which is I was contacted by the Stockholm International Film Festival in Sweden to come and spend both my spring breaks, my two years in Arizona, in Sweden teaching filmmaking to kids there. <laughs> That's so cool. cool. But it's so nice that you, like, you researched this thing that's very specific that you're like, yeah. I can give myself this skill, and you then you lived off it for a long time. Yeah, yeah. That's incredible. Especially a skill that turned into something I loved, you know? I mean, I, I never didn't love working with young people. It's just, like, I just, the way that it happened was very unexpected, and but I've kept in touch with so many of the kids, and I've kept in touch with so many of their parents. Okay, so then you finished the program. I wanted to stay in Arizona because, like my astrologer had predicted, it turns out it was Tucson, Arizona is, like, the best place for me to live. <laughs> I loved it so much, and not just because my rent was $450. <laughs> I... Um, had applied for a bunch of jobs. I don't know if this ever happens to you, but the way that some people like binge drink or binge eat, occasionally I binge apply for jobs. Totally. <laughs> so one of those jobs that I I barely remembered applying for, they said, look, we know you applied to teach filmmaking to young people. It was like a, a summer camp um, in Los Angeles this summer, but actually we have this opening for something else um, in New York. Would you be interested, let's talk. And so I thought, yeah, why not? Full-time job and provided room and board for the summer after um, my second graduate school experience. And so that's what brought me to New York was that job. But I knew that I was taking it in hopes that I could stay in New York because I've always wanted to live here and I never really knew how to do that. It, it was a wild experience. I worked six days a week and it was I was pretty much on call um 24 7 mm -hmm. I had the emergency camp cell phone should anything happen to anyone oh wow that's a lot <laughs> that's how I came to New York and uh and I had that one day a week off began for me on Tuesday night at 11 p.m and then I didn't have to come back until Thursday morning at 7 a.m <laughs> oh well you just had big old vacations every week <laughs> Yeah, and I loved my one day of freedom so much that I was like, okay, if I like New York this much when I'm this exhausted during this one day a week um, where I'm not a prisoner, <laughs> then I will I will try and stay here for a while. So then um, after that was finished, I had a month where I just wasn't sure what I was going to do, where I just like subletted a place and just like figured out what was next. And, um, and then I started working full time at this visual arts education nonprofit called Studio in a School. Studio in a School goes into schools. For high school students, they've got programs that are really great where they match up. You have high school students have to apply. They have to write an essay and then they get training so that they can go work in, an, in a really incredible arts institution in New York. So then they match up students to get summer internships at like the Met or mm -hmm. 
you know, MoMA or Brooklyn Museum. And then those students get um, that amazing internship. Before, I had been working to provide media arts education to low-income kids that wouldn't have access to that otherwise. Um, Now I was somewhere where we were providing visual arts education to kids in schools where they're no longer art classes in New York and, um, and also training to teachers who would then have to carry on that, even though that's not their background or expertise. Met really great people while I was working there and ended up, you know, one of my supervisors there ended up hiring me when she left um, to teach creative writing to kids at an amazing arts summer camp called Usedan. It's almost like an artist residency for kids. It's like they've got everything. They've got acting, they've got dance, organic gardening, because why not? (laughs) So I did that this summer and realized, like, that I love teaching creative writing to kids even more than I love teaching filmmaking to kids. Sorry to all these kids (laughs) I taught filmmaking to. I'd never taught full-time creative writing to kids. And when I say kids, I mean I had fourth graders, sixth graders, seventh graders, bless their, their troubled hearts, (laughs) um, and like 11th graders. Oh, that's great. And so then what did you do? What have you done since? For the first time in my life, honestly, I've just been doing freelance, which has been great and scary. Like I was always someone that was like, I need a full-time job because I need to know I have health insurance. I had my first collection of poems. Of um, So I had this poetry chapbook come out on an independent press last month. Mm-hmm. And that was something. I never considered myself a poet. But yeah, someone had seen things I had written for this website that I've been editing and writing for for two years called Weird Sister, which is a feminist pop culture website. A lot of poets write for it, and so I think I just got accidentally identified as a poet for writing for the website. (laughs) And then that person also followed me on Twitter, which is, you know, I mostly just write jokes on Twitter, and um, and at some point they were like, send me some of your poems. Like, I put out poetry, and I want to read them, and so... I didn't. I avoided it for a long time. I was like, you're crazy. Like, I don't write poems. And then finally I was like, okay, I'll send you these things, but I don't know what to consider them. And so that happened. And then I've been doing readings slash performances. Like, I've just, like, given in. And so now, like, my bio describes me as a writer, filmmaker, and performer, because that's kind of for all the miscellaneous stuff I do. I don't know. Okay, I'm reading slash performing twice next month, um, once at the Poetry Center. It's described as people who are kind of like exploring the line between stand-up comedy and poetry. So now I'm like, oh, now I'm a like a poet com- comedian. A poet comic, I'm a yeah. poet comic. <laughs> but I, and then I'm also reading slash performing at this gallery called Participant Inc. You know, with a bunch of other amazing writers and artists. And uh, I feel most at home with people who are kind of writers slash artists. I've never felt like one thing in every in every regard. Um, I'm going on tour in March with something called Sister Spit. So Sister Spit is this queer feminist writer collective that they've been going on tour for 20 years. And so every year it's a different group of writers, some of the most important writers of our time now. Like Eileen Miles was on the first tour and she's one of my friends and, and artistic heroes. And so just to know that she went on that tour 20 years ago and I'm going on that tour now, like, just makes me feel like I'm part of this legacy of writers. Also, I've just always wanted to go on tour. Like, I've, music has been a big part of my life, and I'm always like, god damn it, why wasn't I in a band so I go on tour? <laughs> so this feels like the perfect thing to go on tour with a bunch of amazing, there's seven of us, and so it's a 15-day tour all up the West Coast. And, oh, that's um, so cool. Yeah. 
And so what kind of venues will you guys So in? they have a pretty... Um, Sister Spit, especially on the West Coast, has sort of like an established fan base and contacts with with universities and bookstores. And so it's kind of like um, a combination of those. And we get paid. I mean, it's not a ton of money, but the idea that like I get paid to go on tour with people who I really respect. And I feel like in the last couple of days, everything has completely shifted. The importance of this tour and what it will mean to be a bunch of... It's mostly, like, queer women of color on this tour. Um, And so to have us together getting to read and speak to audiences every night next March, I think will be really... It's, like, more important than ever. (laughs) Is it all poetry or...? No, no. Everyone has a different style. Yes, yeah. it just started out as a lesbian spoken word group because it was the 90s, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> it's not like quote unquote just women anymore. Like I think now it's really like a tour for queer writers. Though I think this next tour happens to be all women and trans people only. What advice would you give to people who are making the transition from full-time with health insurance to, <laughs> oh, I'm going to be freelance. Because I feel like that's a lot of people that yeah, I know have yeah, that sort totally. of thing. Of, you don't have time to do all these creative things when you have that job. Yeah, I mean, there's so many things that I feel really lucky about that I know that isn't the case with everyone. Like, I was able to get a little bit, when one job was actually ending before another job began, like, and I don't feel guilty for saying this, like, I knew that I was going to be teaching, but I also knew that this job might be ending. So I I didn't quit. I didn't advertise, like, oh, I'm going to be leaving soon. And then when things got restructured, I was offered a severance package because my job was being eliminated. So the nice thing about that was I was like, awesome. Now I'm getting some money to leave here, but I know I have this other job happening, but I can save this money for later. Like I felt like I won the lottery when that (laughs) happened, even though it wasn't a ton of money. It was enough for me. It's like a little seed money. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not kidding when I say that for about nine years, I told my friend who had a rent stabilized apartment in New York that if she ever left, I wanted her place. Like I literally every like few months for nine years was like give me your apartment (laughs) that worked so I was able to get my friend's apartment so I know again that's not something everyone can do but start now you've got got nine years to find those friends friends. (laughs) I know insurance is about to get really really fucked (laughs) but I mean you might be eligible for better currently right now better Obamacare or even I get Medicare and Medicaid confused. Medicaid. Medicaid. Yeah, I always get it confused, too. So I feel like people don't always look into the possibility of what they're eligible for. So there's that. And one thing that's sort of a funny hack that maybe you already know is more than ever, it's a very hard, stressful time to be pretty much anyone who's not a straight white man. And, <laughs> and so I'm on a bunch of different secret Facebook groups, as we all are probably at this point women in the arts, women in comedy, like, turning to each other, asking, like, you know, I can't afford a therapist, I don't have insurance, I'm a freelancer, what do I do? And one thing I think that can be really helpful and is free are 12-step programs. I know, like, that makes people cringe because they're like, but I'm not an alcoholic. But, like, there are other things, you know, that I feel like can bring some instant relief for people that don't have health care. So, like, I have an ex who 
I was like, I think you should check out Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous, you know, and it's been really helpful for him. And I have other friends who I'm like, you're not an alcoholic, but you know, your boyfriend is or your parents are. So maybe check out Al-Anon. Like, I don't think people realize like that stuff is free and you'll find that you're not alone. And I feel like this at this time point in time more than ever, like people need that and think that they can't afford it, but it's actually free and out there or like Overeaters Anonymous or Under Earners Anonymous, which I didn't even know existed until Neither recently. <laughs> yeah. Someone told me that under, I haven't been, but someone told me that Under Earners Anonymous isn't even just for financial stuff. It's like for like people that aren't achieving like what they should be achieving. So like there's a lot of stuff out there. And so I think like untapped yeah. resources, untapped yeah. resources. Her name was Sarah Jacobson, and she was an independent filmmaker who made a film called I Was a Teenage Serial Killer, <laughs> as well as, that was a short film, and then she made a feature film called Mary Jane's Not a Virgin Anymore. You can Google her, Sarah Jacobson, and um, she gave a lot of really amazing advice. It's so simple. She always said, just do it. You know, like everyone is talking about their ideas. Like, oh, I've got this idea for a screenplay. I've got this idea for a film. So just like less time talking about it and more time just actually making it because you're so ahead of much ahead of the game if you just put it out there already, you know, and just make it. So I know it's simple and easier said than done. But then her second piece of advice that I always loved was, think about the resources you have and don't try and make something that you don't have the resources for, you know? So she knew that she wasn't going to have the money for, you know, all the film equipment she wanted or all the crew that she needed. So she was like, I'm going to put my energy into the story then. What can you do with what you have? And so just remembering that and I think thinking about Sarah Jacobson because I think of her as an inspiration reminds me to know the people who've come before you so like to know your like artistic elders you know or like this was something that my mentor in graduate school at UC San Diego Jean-Pierre Gorin who collaborated with Godard used to say a lot but like so much of the art that we have now at least with cinema is a copy of a copy because you're literally your influences are only like five years old so like if you're out there trying to make a film and your favorite filmmaker is Wes Anderson you're gonna end up making like a copy of a Wes Anderson film whereas I mean find out who his influences are and watch and watch those you know and learn about those because if you really like his work that's how you're going to get closer to it you know not just by imitating something that yeah it's pretty recent and so so referential and that's why i love working with kids is because i feel like they're often coming straight from their imaginations versus trying to replicate like what they've seen or read already and i don't always see that when i teach adults or work with adults so that and then my last one is actually something that i learned from my astrologer rosie finn shout out you can google her she's amazing (laughs) pay attention to what's coming with ease because if something feels like an uphill battle repeatedly it's time to step away and like look at what's coming with ease and i don't think that's saying you should give up it's just saying like me teaching kids and getting all these jobs teaching with kids it would be crazy for me to turn my back on that Whereas, like, every time I applied to work for a publishing house, it just, it never clicked, you know, it never worked out. And so I could either invest all my time, like, applying for these things that aren't working out, or I could move toward 
what seems to be coming with ease. And that, like, is applicable to, like, everything. Like, romantic relationships. Like, um, creative pursuits. Paying attention to, you know, where the universe is fighting you and where the universe is like, oh, yeah, come over here, (laughs) do this. (laughs) Oh, I love that. All-star hack. Kathy, how can people keep up with your writings or, you know, tours and things like that? KathyDelacruz.com. C-H-H-Y-D-E-L-A-C-R-U-Z. I tweet all the time, so you can follow me on Twitter. And I did not like living in San Diego, which is why my Twitter handle is Sad Diego. You should definitely add me because as of today, I'm getting getting trolled by Trump supporters. So uh, you should definitely. I'm on Instagram as Kathy Delacruz. Sweet. Well, thank you so much for sitting down yeah. with us. This was such a treat. If everyone could go to the website, www.classactorhack.com, sign up for our mailing list. You can follow us on Instagram, ActorHack. Facebook and Twitter. Shoot us an email at podcast at classactorhack.com. You've been listening to Sweet Sabrettes, All That Glitters from the album Days and Nights. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. If anything, my mother will listen to it. <laughs>